Welcome to Talk About Talk with Dr. Andrea. In this podcast, we will learn about all things communication. Listen as Dr. Andrea and the experts she interviews share their expertise. Let's do this. Let's talk about talk. I'm Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. You can call me Andrea. Thank you so much for listening. As you may know, Talk About Talk focuses on all things communication related. Recently, we covered how to use our voices, body language, and understanding why we talk. Today on Talk About Talk, we are tackling a vast topic, language. In a few minutes, you will hear my interview with a brilliant polyglot and PhD in English literature from Oxford, Dr. Josep Gonzalez. As I always do, I did some research in advance of this interview. Well, thank goodness I did. Dr. Gonzalez and I covered a lot of intense material in this interview. As such, I encourage you to try something new for this episode. If you're interested in learning more about any or all of the topics covered, I've made that easy for you. You can go to the show notes for this episode at talkabouttalk.com. Look under the podcast tab and you will find the show notes there. This document contains references and links and additional facts about language. I hope you will take a look and then tell me what you think. Okay, let's get going. First, definitions. I turn to Steven Pinker here. Have you read any of his books? I read The Language Instinct, The Blank Slate, and The Stuff of Thought, and I highly recommend them. Steven Pinker was born in Montreal and is now a cognitive psychologist and linguist at Harvard. A linguist is someone who studies language, but what exactly is language? Pinker defines language as a simple formula. Language equals words plus rules. Where words have meaning or semantics, and the rules are the structure or the grammar. In Pinker's book, The Stuff of Thought, he talks about one of the most basic principles of linguistics being that the relation of a sound to a meaning of a word is arbitrary. Except, of course, with onomatopoeia. You know, words that sound like what they represent, like cuckoo or bark. But what does Pinker mean? He's saying that the sounds of words have nothing to do with their meaning. So when words are invented... They are random, I suppose you could say. Pinker says in his book that the first coiner of a term for a political affiliation, like conservative or liberal or whatever, could have instead used the word glorg or schmendrick or McGillicuddy. Yes, these are his examples. As Shakespeare has Juliet say, What's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. I was reminded of this quote when I was listening to a TED Talk by Lyra Boroditsky. Dr. Boroditsky is a professor at UC San Diego and cognitive scientist who specializes in linguistics. Amongst other things, her research considers questions associated with linguistic relativity. What is linguistic relativity? Simply put, it focuses on the controversial question of whether the languages we speak shape the way we think. For example... If your language doesn't have words for some numbers, how would that affect your thinking? Would you always be rounding up or down? What about languages that have multiple words for color, like many whites or many blues? Does that affect how people see things? What about how you write your language? Do you write left to right or vice versa? How does that affect your perception of direction, of time? Then, 
there is grammatical gender, or whether and how the language you speak references nouns as having a gender. Does that affect your perception of things? Spoiler alert, yes, of course it does. Fascinating. We will get into some of this with Dr. Gonzalez. Certainly, there are many, many languages. Can you guess how many languages are spoken on this planet? Is it a few hundred? Maybe a thousand? Five thousand? What do you think? According to the Linguistic Association of America, or the LSA, I'll put a link in the show notes, there are just under 7,000 languages. The top five languages spoken in the world, in terms of native speakers, includes Mandarin, Spanish, English, Hindi, and Arabic, in that order. So English is third. In case you're wondering what a graph showing the distribution of all languages in the world would look like, remember there are almost 7,000 languages. Interestingly, the top 100 languages account for 85% of the world's population, so there are many, many languages with only a very small number of speakers. We know that many people on our planet are multilingual. A polyglot is someone with a high degree of proficiency in many languages. Did you know that less than 1% of the population speaks five languages fluently? Trevor Noah, the comedian and host of The Daily Show, yes, I'm a fan, he's a polyglot. He speaks English, Koza, Zulu, Sutu, Swana, Sangha, Afrikaan, and German. Dr. Giuseppe Gonzalez, whom I will introduce to you in a moment, he's also a polyglot. He is fluent in five languages. I happen to know from some work I did with him recently that he is also very familiar with Latin. In terms of multilingualism, there are countries that have more multilinguals and polyglots, such as Switzerland, where a high proportion of people speak German, Italian, French, Romance, and or English. And Morocco, where many people speak Arabic, French, Spanish, Moroccan, and or English. Unquestionably, there are real advantages to learning different languages. You will hear some of these from Dr. Gonzalez. When I was researching language, I came across a quote from Charlemagne, the Holy Roman Emperor. He said, To have a second language is to have a second soul. Wow, that is quite profound. Who couldn't use a second soul? Now, let me introduce you to an expert in languages, Dr. Giuseppe Gonzalez. Dr. Gonzalez speaks French, English, Catalan, Spanish, and Italian, all fluently. He is currently the head of school at TFS Canada's International School, which is a bilingual French and English IB World School in Toronto, Canada. He holds a PhD in English Literature from the University of Oxford. He has served as a department head, a language and literature professor, and a lecturer at prestigious schools and universities, including the University of Oxford, Eton College, and the British School of Barcelona, where he was headmaster. He has also written award-winning novels and has been a cultural commentator and media spokesperson on many educational topics, including bilingualism in schools and developing students' international-mindedness. Thank you so much for joining us, Giuseppe. I really appreciate your time. I thought we should just start with the basics. What is language? Language is uh, a lot of different things. I would describe language as a system of signs that we use for communication purposes. Verbal language is made up of words 
um, words have meanings and they acquire connotations um, depending on what other words they're uh, placed with. Words are linked um, through what we call syntax. Syntax is a way that words are put together in order to give meaning, a meaning of cause, a meaning of consequence, a meaning of goal, finality. Right, that reminds me of the book that was popular, mm -hmm. Eats, Shoots and Leaves, and depending on where you put mm -hmm. the punctuation, it had three different meanings. Yes. So think of a, a game of chess. The meaning of the word would be, it's the identity of each piece. Um, by each piece, I mean, are we talking about pawns, are we talking about the queen, are we talking about the syntax, is the rules governing the way they move and interact with each other. Oh, okay. For example, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, a horse, queen, the king, they, they move in different ways. You have a chessboard and you have the pieces, but you don't know the rules, you cannot play chess. The same with verbal language. Nicely put. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move on then to multiple languages. And I know that you personally are fluent in five languages, and I think you're being humble there because I know you have at least some mastery in other languages as well, including, for example, Latin. And you work as the head of a multilingual international school, so clearly you are an advocate of multilingualism. Can you tell us what some of the main advantages or effects are of learning and conversing in multiple languages? Mm -hmm. And the basic idea for me is that a language is always a window into a particular kind of culture. A language is not just a, a means of communication. Each language gives you a particular perspective on reality. It's not just a means, it's the way language actually structures your brain, structures your thinking, structures um, what, what you think about reality. In certain languages, for example, um, there are as many as 20 different words um, to describe the snow. Right. And for them it's different kinds of things. It doesn't make any sense. And to have 20 words for snow in a Romance language like Spanish. Right. Um, because obviously, uh, you know, say in Spain, we see the snow in the Pyrenees and in, 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 in a couple of other mountain ranges, but it's not part of our everyday life. Because at the end of the day, language um, is a response to reality. And by reality, I mean the physical reality, but it also our intellectual reality. And therefore, for example, you know, there's in Japanese, there's a particular word when it's hot and humid and stick in the summer, there's a particular word for it. But that's precisely because Japan, in the summer, it's not just 32 degrees or 35 degrees, it's that plus the humidity factor, and the humidity factor is going to mean that, you know, you feel more tired, you feel more, um, so there is a particular um, word, mushiatsu um, in, Moshiatsui? In, uh, yes. <laughs> Close. <laughs> That's right, yes. The relationship between uh, Japanese people and their environment means that there is a need for a particular word for which there is no need in Scotland. Right. So what about back to the benefits though? What, why would I consider sending my child to a school that teaches bilingual or multiple languages? I could stay at a very practical level and talk about the fact that um, obviously speaking different languages uh, you know, from the point of view of the job market is, is extremely useful, not just in Canada but beyond Canada for international affairs. Rather than staying at that level, I think I want to take it a little bit um, deeper yeah. um, and talk about the fact that um, languages uh, shape your view of reality. Let me give you um, other examples in something as relatively basic and useful as Wikipedia. The entry for the Plains of Abraham 
might be different in, in English and in French, uh, because the historical meaning for ca- uh, Francophone Canadians and Anglophone Canadians is extremely different. Right. By being able to read both entries, we might end up with a richer understanding of what that battle meant. Likewise, if we talk about a city like Jerusalem, presumably being able um, to read texts in Hebrew and in Arabic might give us a better understanding of the historical um, context, you know, of that city, the history of, of that city and understand its current makeup. And, and uh, so I always think that language gives us a different perspective on the world. And that for me, it's, it's extremely important. So as you were describing those effects, I was thinking that a lo- lot of people travel for similar reasons, right? They travel to get a new perspective on the world, on themselves. Learning a language, it's not the same, but it's the same kind of pursuit mm-hmm. of understanding international or cultural context. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say, I would claim that it's a more profound way, uh, because sometimes when we go to other countries, when we take in a very superficial understanding... Right. Um, of that country, in particular, if, if we, you know, if we go to Cuba and we only go to a beach resort, for example, you right. know. But I think that if you want to go deeper into it, the language is necessary because you know understanding reality is not just about understanding the physical reality of a country or a population or a culture. It's about going deeper and see the historical construction that that particular culture has done of itself through language. Right. Um, in the same way as understanding the art or, um, you know, the paintings, the sculptures, the, right. the architecture. That gives you something. But the more complex um, sort of concepts developed over time, for that, language is absolutely essential. Interesting. I never thought of that. So traveling to a different culture... It's more visual. All mm-hmm. of those things that you just listed, they're more visual. Mm-hmm. And you can make your own interpretations about what you're observing and even what you're hearing, but you're probably not hearing things that are in a language that you have command of, right? And mm-hmm. then if you do mm-hmm. have command of that language, you have, as you say, another window into that culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, you're absolutely right. Language is a form of travel, if you want to put it that way. If if you learn Latin or ancient Greek, you're traveling to the minds of you know a society that lived in that case in Europe and North Africa, sort of two thousand years ago, two thousand five hundred years ago. So you're traveling in time um, by learning a particular language. Uh, and if you learn other languages, like say Mandarin Chinese or Japanese or Arabic or Hebrew or Spanish or French, what you're doing is traveling emotionally, rationally, to the realm of a culture which is different from yours. So it is a form of travel. It is a form of human journey, if you wish to put it that way. Right. When I was doing my research, I found I was actually fascinated by grammatical gender. In English, nouns are neutral. They don't have a gender associated with them. And that's the case in in many languages. But in other languages, particularly the Romance or Neo-Latin languages, such as Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, and French, of which you are um, fluent in, objective nouns are either feminine or masculine. And it turns out that this has an effect on how people, as you say, have a different perspective in reality, mm-hmm. right? There's this professor named Lyra Boroditsky at UC San Diego who did some research to understand how people speak and the rules and the syntax of the language that they speak, how it affects their perspective. And when nouns such as bridges are masculine in that language, they refer to bridges as strong and sturdy, 
Whereas when they are feminine, they're elegant and beautiful. So what about bilingual people? Would how they think about that tangible object change depending on the language that they're speaking at the time? I would say that by being bilingual or trilingual or multilingual, what happens is that you add another layer of complexity, which makes you more sophisticated as a thinker, uh, because then you have to think. Did you hear that? That was a smackdown. <laughs> <laughs> I only know one language. He knows five plus. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, not. Oh, not. <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> so the so knowing multiple languages makes you more sophisticated. <laughs> makes you makes you. Let's knowing different languages gives you more layers, um, and when you have more layers, it adds complexity to your mm. understanding mm. Um, of the world. Mm. Or to put it another way. Um, you see the world as being more and more complex, right? As opposed to the given world, um, the, the world that is given to you by one language. Right. So, an example I could. So, talk- does the word discerning fit in here some- somehow? Yes, yeah, yeah. I think it so. has to do with discernment. It yeah. has to do with having more information that you can draw on, right? Yep. To then come to your own conclusions. You have multiple contexts. Yes, yes, multiple frameworks, multiple contexts. That that's right. So let, let me talk about one particular example that is, it can be relatively superficial if you wish, and then we can go to deeper examples. Yep. You know, something which is not very pleasant to talk about, which is death. Our understanding of death is different in different languages precisely because in some languages it's masculine and in some languages it is feminine. Wow. So for example, um, let me give you an example of Latin languages um, where the concept of death is feminine. The fact that death in Romance languages is feminine gives us a sense of comfort Mm. uh, and that you will find a huge amount of literature, and I'm not talking about religious literature at all, I'm talking about, you know, poetry, all sorts of novels in which the figure of death um, it's almost like a almost like a mother figure. Yeah, maternal uh, nurturing. Maternal nurturing um, uh, that is going to finally allow you to rest and to get away from the troubles of the world. Okay. Whereas I remember when I was little or a teenager, and I saw it must have been some kind of American movie uh, in which death uh, was personified by this uh, a man with a hood and and the scythe. I didn't understand. The Grim Reaper. The, exactly. Uh, the Grim Reaper for me doesn't exist. I mean, it's not something that I was familiar with, so that sign was lost on me. And that added another layer to my understanding um, of death, a layer which in that case is more ominous, is more um, kind of threatening. So sometimes our view of something as fundamental as you know, birth or death or is also coloured by the gender that that word has in that particular language. Wow. Yeah. Not just these tangible, I guess, no, uh, no, relatively no. inconsequential things like bridges and cars. No. no, and that's why I'm saying that language ultimately is about reason. So the whole of the intellectual history of a people, of a nation, of a language uh, community is contained by language. If we're talking about gender, mm-hmm. then there's also the discussion, which takes us into um, areas such as feminism, such as you know the whole discussion of, of um, gender relations in our society. And sometimes there have been some philosophers, and I'm thinking of, for example, the French philosopher Hélène Sixou, who talked very much about the fact that sometimes we have what she called death-dealing um, binary combinations in languages, one of them being gender. 
it's either masculine or feminine. Okay. What did she mean by that? She she meant that because of um, gender, sometimes we associate, say, for example, normally in Romance languages, you associate the sun with masculinity and the moon with femininity. And um, because of the gender, and also because of the historical, if you go back to Roman times, you know, in terms of the different gods or goddesses associated to those particular, uh, you know, objects. And, and it's almost as if one is the, rather than being both of them at the same level, one rules, and the other one is the negative side of the same thing. That's why she calls those uh, relationships binary, binary relationships, yeah. because there's either one or the other. And she calls them death-dealing, because you cannot be one without sort of almost being opposite to the other. Um, so there's almost like a fight for supremacy. Um, and what she says is that um, really, basically, we need to get beyond um, that binary um, uh, sort of view of reality and society um, so that we can actually construct um, something new which is more complex as opposed to just binary. So gender, historically, has played it even in the whole concept of patriarchy. Right. And sometimes, as, as you can imagine, Romance languages these days, when you say, uh, you know, good morning to you all, uh, very often that you, we put it both in the masculine and the feminine these days, so that everybody feels um, part of. So bonjour à toutes et à tous in French, for example. So gender can also play... So you're actually explicitly saying... We're explicitly saying... saying all, uh, all of you females and all of uh, you males. Yes, yes. Cause which, which, again, is binary, to your point. Uh, yes, and that is binary. Um, but if you wish, that's an intermediary stage to something else. But, but the thing is that at least I think we've become more aware, more conscious of the fact that there are certain binary relationships um, in language which can be part of the whole vicious circle uh, of patriarchy. Right. So as long as you're conscious that you're separating biology from culture, then that's when culture becomes more flexible mm. and you can start thinking by separating biology from culture and we're able to destroy this kind of death-dealing binary thought right. uh, that Alain Sixou sees as the, as the basis of patriarchy. Well, I mean, it makes sense rationally. It's like the synergistic interpretation is always going to be more sophisticated and probably more valid than the binary sun, moon, black, white, male, mm -hmm. female. Correct. Right? Correct. It's the shades of gray, as they might yes. say. And that's where you add shades of complexity, which can only be good. The more complex um, our thoughts are, the closer we are to reality, because reality is complex. We cannot right. just pigeonhole um, people right. or things right. or nature. I wonder what she would say about what's happening um, in terms of all these countries where there's two parties, conservative... Republican and the liberal Democrats fighting with each other and it's really presented as a binary yeah. decision. Yes. And, and and the answer is that that obviously takes away complexity. Right. And then it's, and it's not ideal. It's certainly. not ideal. It's not ideal. By having more parties what happens is that reality becomes more complex um, and I think we should be able to cope with complex um, reality because um, it makes us um, I think richer from the point right. of view of our view right. um, of reality. Right. Many European countries and I'm thinking of Germany uh, um, traditionally have more 
than uh, one party and um, and yes it is true that recently Germany has had certain issues uh, from the point of view of forming a coalition government but traditionally it's worked extremely well right and Germany has had very very stable governments right you know for decades there, um, it's like their political system is giving more credit to the populace to understand the nuances mm -hmm, of the various mm -hmm. party positions instead of just making it binary which is kind of the dumbed down mm -hmm. simple way of making a decision. That's right, yes, that's right. Anything that can contribute to more um, layers of understanding uh, is going to give us uh, the view that the world is complex, and when the world is complex, you're out there not to win, but to negotiate. And, and I think that's crucial, um, yes. that we think of the world as almost like an agora, agora in the sort of Greek sense of the word, that is to say a place where we meet like a a kind of a metaphorical town, town square where we meet to try to understand the complexity of the world um, and to try and negotiate democratically right. um, what the future of us as a community might look like. Right. So all of this relates to the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, the idea of linguistic relativity or linguistic determinism. And it sounds fancy, but it's really a general theory that says that, as you said early on in this conversation, Our inherent uh, grammar vocabulary shapes our perception, how we see the world, as you said, our perspective of reality and a window into the culture. So I have a question for you, Giuseppe, that relates to this hypothesis and its implications. Thinking to written language, for just over 10 years now, people have been using hashtags to label things. Hashtags were first used on Twitter in 2007. Hashtags are, are meant to make your social media posts gather in one Um, collective space for people to reference. If this hypothesis is true and our vocabulary shapes how we see the world, can introducing new language like this in the form of a hashtag potentially change not just our perception, but our behaviors and our culture? The answer is obviously yes. That is to say, what happens is that language is in constant evolution. And sometimes when we're speaking, um, we, um, we want to mean that what we're going to say is within quotation marks. Right. Or, um, I'm sure that that's a relatively new gesture. I, right. don't, I can't remember it um, when I was a child, certainly not, True. not where I come from, True. probably in Canada either. And so that, that adds something to a society that is literate uh, and therefore understands that the, 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 the use of quotation marks um, Um, or, uh, It's like punctuating your verbal language exactly. with a euphemism a and, exactly. and I guess communicating explicitly or physically communicating that you understand you're using a euphemism, right? Correct, correct. So that is part of the natural evolution of language in the same way as very often we will just say LOL because it's something that is part of the text message language. Um, so we have to accept the fact that language is evolve. Right. Um, if they didn't evolve, I'd still be speaking Latin, and I don't. I speak Spanish. I well, speak you do Catalan. speak Latin. <laughs> <laughs> I understand Latin. Yes. Um, let me say that um, I think that uh, as long as something like the word hashtag um, is used to make us see that reality is actually more complex than we think, then I'm in favor of it. Um, if so it legitimizes hashtag, the word, right? It legitimizes mm -hmm. the movement, it, it labels it, and maybe therefore legitimizes it? 
Yes, but that can also have um, kind of a negative effect. Right. Because, for example, there can be some people, say, on the far right, and by far right, I'm thinking of historical movements like, yep. um, uh, you know, uh, Nazi politics, for example, um, with some unfortunate sort of remnants um, in, in our day, uh, that can use that also uh, right, of to, course. to legitimize some of their own positions. Um, no, I didn't mean legitimize in a positive way. I just meant legitimize in terms of people... Uh, interpreting it as something that is real, that is shared by at least some people, not necessarily right or wrong. Uh, yes, uh, but that that in itself can be dangerous. I'm not saying that this will have a negative effect, because it could have a very positive effect. I'm just saying that, like everything else in life, it's complex. So, for example, very often when we talk about uh, the difference between uh, philosophical discourse and emotional communication is that philosophical discourse um, is always at the level of ideas as opposed to at the level of opinions. What do I mean by that? We can have different positions or different ways to kind of tackle a debate as if we're participating in this in this debate. Um, we can go with the flow, we can go with a majority opinion, and but the danger of that is that if it's not well-reasoned, that it becomes demagogical, so it's right. demagogy at the end of the day. Sometimes we can fall in what, what is called doxology. Doxology means opinion as opposed to idea. So sometimes, and if I say that, you know, I like blue, there's nothing you can say to make me change my mind. That's simply my opinion. Right. Uh, and therefore also, uh, we have to be careful not to fall into doxology, not to fall into opinion. Also in terms of debates, I'm of the opinion um, that sometimes traditionally it can be called sophistry. Uh, that means that we're trying to persuade um, other people of the fact that we're right. Instead of engaging um, in a philosophical discussion that is going to make all of us wiser by the end of our discussion. Right. In English, we use the word to persuade. Yep. Uh, you know, the French word for it is convaincre. Convaincre has the word vaincre in it, which is to win. So persuasion has the idea of winning over somebody else. Wow. It's uh, having supremacy over the other person, ultimately, and because I've managed to change your opinion. Right. And, and uh, that's not a bad thing. We're talking about human rights, obviously. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is that we, we always need to be conscious. The closer we are um, to the complexity of reality, and the easier it is going to be to build a society in which we can all live and live happily together. Mm. So as you were describing that, it occurred to me that a lot of people would feel overwhelmed by the complexity of the world, which, I mean, the truth is the world is incredibly complex and messy, mm -hmm. and understanding languages can simplify that. It can give people different sets of glasses yeah. through which to interpret the reality. Huh. I went from feeling a little bit potentially overwhelmed to then feeling like, well, understanding a language would help me. I would say that in the first place, I think it's important um, to be able to master your own language. Okay. Say that uh, when you, by, by mastering a language, I mean being able to communicate at a complex, sophisticated level. And sometimes, uh, without naming um, politicians necessarily south of the border, <laughs> when they speak, they use very complex vocabulary and syntax, which means that they have a, a, a complex view um, of society and, and their national and, and sort of international reality, whereas other speakers um, who 
tend to go for the populist vote. Right. Um, they tend to stick to very simple sentences, no conjunctions, and everything is black or white. That might be attractive in the kinds of democracies that, that, that where we live, but at the end of the day, it's giving simple solutions to extremely complex, sometimes economic issues, and um, you know, just, just going for a yes or no, just going for a binary, it's probably not the right solution in the long term. The default for humans is a less effortful way of thinking about things, so that's why populism is popular, right? Perhaps? hasn't always been like that, and it doesn't need to always be like that. Uh, and I think it's probably the role of education to ensure um, that we uh, uh, educate generations um, that are going to see reality through its complexity, mm. which are not going to look for um, sort of easy solutions to complex issues. So I think it's the role of, of education to ensure that we go against that you called it almost like a natural trend. We all look upward as opposed to all of us looking downward. So for me, democracy is aspirational and therefore it is important that if we give people the right tools, right. Um, if we make sure that people generally uh, you know, use language in a complex way that become sophisticated, then that can only be good. So I would say that mm. um, sophistication in our own mother tongue as well as multilingualism, at the end of the day, they give us um, different kinds of um, understanding of the same issue, and right. therefore it allows us to progress. Do you think that social movements and culture in and of itself can accelerate over time in terms of its evolution because of the fact that our language is uh, allowing us to label things, and I guess it is intertwined with the technology due to the hashtags. So, for example, popula populism is, seems to be on the rise over the weekend. I read a couple mm -hmm. different newspapers and there were articles written by past politicians and professors all over the world talking about the rise of populism. Mm -hmm. But could it be that it will come and go faster than it otherwise would have because of things like hashtags? It is accelerating exchanges without a doubt. Um, does it mean that um, it's not just accelerating, but it's making them more widely available? Um, so the, the Me Too hashtag, for example, is not just a North American thing. You know, wherever you go on the planet, mm -hmm. you're going to be people who are going to be following um, that, that interesting um, debate. And, but I think that we always need to think of the quality as opposed to the quantity. Right. What we want is quality and what we want is depth. And that's technology for the time being has not necessarily helped um, mm. in that way. Um, it's just been another agent um, of change. But I don't think that technology has necessarily helped us um, go deeper. So and I'm thinking about your role as the head of school at a multilingual school and I'm thinking... One could take from what you just said that educating the students through the two different lenses, which are the two different contexts of seeing the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the aims of education um, is to ensure that there's a sophistication of thought, that there's critical thinking, uh, and, that's, and that has to do with your mother tongue. But then by being in a, a bilingual or multilingual environment, what you're doing is you're breaking one of the most important basic assumptions that should never be made. Um, and is that, uh, no, language is not just a vehicle. <laughs> language shapes your view of reality, as I was saying at the beginning. Uh, you know, if you have 20 different words for snow, you're going to see 20 different kinds of what I would call snow. 
language shapes what we think about reality, how we segment reality, how we explain um, uh, reality. Nicely put. So I, I'm going to move on then to um, the five rapid fire questions that I ask every guest. Okay. So my first question is, what are your pet peeves? My pet peeves. I suppose I could talk about a lack of order, um, lack of depth, mm. um, and lack of loyalty. So I very much value those three things: order, order depth, depth, and loyalty. And loyalty. Yes, yes. What type of learner are you? Uh, visual, maybe. I'm visual. very, very visual as a learner. That's actually um, surprising because I thought students who, in particular, are auditory learners find it easier to acquire languages. That is true. Yes, I, I'm attuned to, for example, different kinds of accents. Um, I love music. Um, so it is true that my auditory sense has been developed and I've worked on it um, over uh, decades. Having said that, I'm more of a visual um, learner. So, for example, if you introduce me to somebody and you say, here's such and such, I will forget. If you give me his um, or her business card, I will remember because right. my eyes have a bit of a photographic memory that will remind yep. me. I'm exactly the same way. And you know what I do now? If the person doesn't have a business card or if they're not wearing a name tag, I actually ask them to spell it. Mm -hmm. And then I picture the word, the letters in my mind. Yeah. Okay, next question. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? An introvert. Without a doubt. Being an introvert doesn't necessarily mean that I'm shy. No, it doesn't. Um, being an introvert for me means um, that I tend to have a relatively rich sort of inner life um, and that um, I love people, but at the same time, there's that side of me um, which is, uh, you know, reflective. I often think, when I'm reading, for example, I stop, I ponder, I reflect. So I'm an introvert from and that And that's where you get your energy? That's where I get my energy, yeah. and that's where I try and, 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 and get those different shades of meaning. So and I agree, you're not shy. I'm not surprised to hear mm -hmm. you are an introvert mm -hmm. and you're not shy. Yeah. So yes, I can I can speak in public. I can I love doing that actually. Mm -hmm. But for example, to be able to speak in public, I need to have gone through a massive process of reflection. Right. Um, it is only when I've reflected on a particular subject that I can speak in public, because then I'm being authentic. So right. so for me, being an intro introvert helps me be authentic in my messaging. Right. And and that's why you're such an effective, and you probably enjoy writing. I love writing. It's an internal dialogue. Yes. I love communication. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Fourth question. What is your communication preference for personal conversations? So Precisely because I'm a bit of an introvert, I'd rather do it uh, through email mm -hmm. or text message. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm going to try and have a deep conversation with somebody, I'm more likely to pick up a phone mm -hmm. or to be there in person, um, if possible, and, and, and try to discuss something. Last question. Is there a podcast, blog, or email newsletter that you find yourself recommending to other people the most? There are many, okay, but I'm not going to recommend one, and I'll tell you why. I think that in, in, in the kind of society where we live, I think that because uh, our society um, leads us towards a certain shallowness of communication, uh, and sometimes social media can lead to that, um, I think that rather than recommending any of the blogs and podcasts, which I follow, I would recommend going back to basic, heavy texts. Um, for the history um, of uh, ah. culture. 
that are going to give us, uh, you know, that that, that that sort of food for thought, yep. that are going to um, give us, you know, encourage us to, to add more and more layers uh, to our depth. But if we go all the way back to Plato, I don't think that he was less of an intelligent man um, than any of our great intellectuals um, these days. So um, I'd go for depth, historical depth and current depth, as opposed to um, a certain shallowness. Okay. Wow. That's not the answer that I was expecting, but now that you've said it, I am, in retrospect, not surprised. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is there anything else you want to add? When we were talking about the different um, purposes of language uh, and why sophistication of language is important, language is a vehicle for democracy. A vehicle for democracy. Democracy. So if we ensure um, that we all become more sophisticated from the point of view of our mastery of our own language, and perhaps also little by little learn other languages, it means that all of us become more sophisticated in our thinking and therefore democracy is truer. Democracy is more authentic because we can go beyond populist um, sort of debates into more substantial and profound debates. So I see language as a vehicle for true democracy. If democracy is only voting every four years, mm-hmm. um, then how deep is it? Right. Um, I think we need to go further than that and enable, empower everyone to be able to be part of the construction of our future by being able to enter um, in this kind of complex dialogue, complex dialogue in terms of gender, complex dialogue um, in terms of the environment, complex dialogue in terms of rights, in terms of responsibilities. It's all extremely complex and we cannot discuss that without language. We can express emotions without language, we can love without language, but we cannot express um, all of those very serious um, topics that will construct our future without sophistication of language. So for me, I repeat, language is the vehicle for authentic democracy. Well put. Thank you very much for your time. I enjoyed spending this time with you and um, I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. This was a great dialogue. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I hope you too enjoyed that interview. Is your brain stimulated? Are you inspired to learn a new language? Or at least learn a better command of English? Me too. Given all the information we covered, I leave you with three main points. First, chess. We can think of a particular language as being like a game of chess. We can't speak the language if we don't know the words and the syntax, just like you can't play chess if you don't know the pieces and the rules. A verbal language is a rational system as is the game of chess. Second, and this is Dr. Gonzalez's main point, I think, language is a window into a particular culture, and each unique language gives you a unique perspective on reality. Language shapes what we think about reality, how we segment reality, and how we explain reality. We talked briefly about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis and the idea of linguistic relativity. Our inherent grammar and vocabulary shapes our perception, how we see the world, our perspective of reality, and a window into the culture. As Dr. Gonzalez says, knowing different languages gives you more layers or contexts through which to view the world. And when you have more layers, it adds complexity and sophistication to your understanding of the world. Simply put, you become a more sophisticated thinker. Yes, I regret not learning more languages. Which leads me to the third and last key learning. It's a prescription, really. What can we do with all this? 
Of course, you could learn a new language, or two, or even just learn to master your own language. But Dr. Gonzalez gave us other suggestions too, like avoid thinking in simple binary pairs, or as French philosopher Elan Sitsu calls them, death-dealing binary combinations. There is nuance and complexity all around us, and complexity is probably more valid than the sun, moon, black, white, liberal, conservative, or male-female binary views. As Dr. Gonzalez says, the more complex our thoughts are, the closer we are to reality, because reality is complex. Dr. Gonzalez also encourages us all to read history, basic, heavy texts, as he calls them, and the story of culture. He suggests Plato. Last, Dr. Gonzalez encourages us to be sophisticated, critical thinkers, particularly in discerning opinion versus fact. Negotiate with philosophical discourse, recognizing what is fact, what is a new idea to consider, and what is an opinion. Engaging in a philosophical discussion that is going to make all of us wiser. As he says, we can express emotions without language, we can love without language. But we cannot express all of those very serious topics that will construct our future without the sophistication of language. Language is the vehicle for authentic democracy. Now, as always, I thank you so much for listening. Everyone's time is valuable, and I'm honored that you spent this time to listen to this Talk About Talk podcast. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new that you can take with you. I also hope you might tell your friends who are also intellectually curious to take a listen as well. Please connect with us to tell us what you think on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. You can also email me at andrea at talkabouttalk.com. One last thing. If you have a moment, please go to Apple iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're using and rate this podcast. It helps us a lot to get some traction in this wonderful podcast universe. Thank you so much. And talk soon.